Good morning. It is good to be with you again. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Today we will be looking at verses 16 and 17, but I will read a few verses around to give us some context. John chapter 14, we'll pick up verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord, we would pray now that as you have promised, you will do, that you will send your spirit amongst us this morning, that he will come, that you will give your help and strength to me as I seek to faithfully open up your word, that the words that I say and speak this morning will be true and in accord with your word, and anything that is not will fall away. And our Lord, that you will take the things which we see in your word this morning, that you will work them in our hearts, that you will make application to us, that your Spirit will convict us of our remaining sin, our lack of knowledge, our lack of understanding and faithfulness and love. And our Lord, that we will come to see you and see our Savior in a more glorious and wondrous way. And our Lord, we would pray that this morning you may even... Take these things and apply them to the hearts of those who have not yet believed. That this morning they will bow the knee to King Jesus. That they will know the wondrous work of salvation.
through him and him alone. Our God, we pray your help. We pray your for your spirit amongst us this morning. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The last time I was with you, we considered verse 15, and we focused on love for God. We observed how Christ is eminently worthy of all love and adoration. We saw how if we love God, we will also keep his commandments, and how these two things are interconnected and inseparable. We made the point that the summary of the commandments is to love God. So if we love God, we will keep his commandments. As we come to verse 16, we find the word and, linking this to what we, these verses to what we saw in verse 15. Jesus tells his disciples, he says to us, that if we love him, we will keep his commandments and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Here again, Christ continues to reveal to his disciples that which would soon take place, and makes promises to them for their comfort and assurance in light of his impending departure. We have observed that throughout the upper room discourse, Jesus is seeking to give his disciples assurances and promises that will uphold them in the hours and days to come. We have here Jesus providing them, making provision for them, that there will be another that will come after him, that will fulfill the needs of the disciples. We had previously noted that up to this point, Christ had met every need for the disciples. He made sure that they were provided for. They relied on him for everything. He provided for them physically, and he provided for them spiritually. He was their teacher. He was their rabbi. When they had a question, they would go to him and ask. We see that recorded throughout the Gospels. He would provide instruction to them. We see various cases where he would give a parable to the crowds, and then later he would provide further instruction and teaching from that parable to his disciples. When we think about Christ's departure in this context, we recognize how great a hole would be left for the disciples. Think about what it would mean for a church to lose their pastor and then multiply it exponentially. A pastor preaches and teaches and instructs the church. He fulfills a critical role. Pastors are referred to under-shepherds, but this was Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. The disciples had enjoyed the privilege and blessing of sitting under his ministry for the previous three years, having immediate access to the Son of God, 
for three years. Why would he be leaving? How could he leave them? What were they going to do? Well, Jesus makes provision for them in these verses. He promises to send another helper, another comforter. Jesus says, I will pray the Father. And it is important to note this phrase prior to the promise of the Spirit. When we think of prayer, we typically have in mind an idea of us praying to God, of one that is inferior making requests to one that is greater. And indeed, there have been those who erroneously have taught that this verse indicates that Jesus was not God. Jehovah's Witnesses, among others. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. This was not the case, though. And it is interesting to note that the Greek has two words that we find translated pray throughout the New Testament. And I apologize if I mispronounce these words, but uh, let me quote from the pulpit commentary. They say, Erotan, which is the word used here in verse 16, Erotan is used of an asking which is based on close and intimate fellowship. It is a word which implies the presentation of a wish or a desire from an equal to an equal. Well, Atian represents the prayer or seeking which rises from an inferior to a superior. Atian is the word that was rendered pray in verses 13 and 14 of John 14. And whatever you ask or pray in my name, that I will do. Verse 14, if you ask or pray anything in my name, I will do it. It is interesting to know, as I was studying this, this is slightly an aside, but as I was studying this, I noted that the word Atian we find used in John 11, verse 22, in the account of Lazarus' death, when Martha speaks to Jesus, she uses Atian. She says, but even now I know whatever you Ask, using ATN, God. God will give you. In using the word ATN, we see that even Martha did not fully comprehend that Jesus was equal to God. But here is an application that, again, is slightly an aside, but we notice Jesus' gentleness and patience with Martha. Jesus could have taken this as a slight or an insult, but we do not see any correction or chiding of her for her mistake. And I would say that we ought to learn from our Savior in this. How many of us, 
if we are in a role or a position of authority and somebody assumes we do not have authority, would be quick to correct such a mistake. Now, I digress, but, in, but it is an interesting application of this word that I thought I would share with you. So we have here Jesus promising that he will pray to his Father as an equal. Just to emphasize the point here, let me give you another example. It might be uh, helpful. It is not exact, but it's uh, maybe helps underscore the difference here. If a husband were to ask his wife and say, there's, there's one more cookie here. Do you mind if I have it? That is completely different than a child going to their mother saying, Mommy, can I have a cookie? One is the husband just making sure that there's no other reasons why he can't have that. The other is a child asking for permission. And now again, that's not a one-to-one example. But it underscores the point. Our relationship to the Father is indeed different from Jesus' relation to the Father. The Father is God and the Son is God. Jesus and the Father are one. They are one in purpose and will. We are man created by God. We are the creature. He is the creator. We are sinners who have transgressed his holy law. And even after we have been saved, our wills are not perfectly in accord with his will. We come to the Father as a child comes to their father. We approach him knowing that he delights to give his children good things. But yet we come with petitions. We are inferior and he is superior Our wills and desires at times will not be in accord with his will, may not be in accord with what is best for us. In contrast, Jesus' will is perfectly in accord with the Father's will. All that he asks of the Father is the Father's will. Jesus says, I will pray the Father. And let's, let me just pause on this f- for a moment. Few of the commentators note the emphasis on this I. Previously, Jesus has just said, if you love me, if or you will keep my commandments. But here he changes the focus. Now he says, I. I, Jesus Christ. The Son of God will pray and ask the Father. Jesus says, if you do what I ask of you, if you obey me, if you keep my commandments, I will ask the Father. Note the certainty. Not only will he ask the Father, but he says the Father will give. I will ask, and he will give. Absolute certainty in these words. 
We may pray to God for something, and the answer may be a no. When our Savior asks his Father for something, it will always be granted. Being that the Father's will and the will of the Son are one and the same, it is never possible for the Father to deny the Son's request. What we have in this verse is just one piece of Christ's intercession for us. As we speak of this, speak of Jesus being God and equal to the Father, having one will with the Father, and interceding with the Father on our behalf, I, at least, still have a great challenge in fully wrapping my mind around all these things and Jesus' intercession for us. It is indeed a wonder that I think all men struggle to fully comprehend. Let me give you a quote, though, from Alexander McLaren on this verse. He says, "His that is Christ's intercession is the great hope of the Christian heart. His intercession is the great activity of his present exalted and glorious state. His intercession is no mere verbal utterance, nor the representation to the Father of an alien or a diverse will. But his intercession, mysterious as it is, and unfathomable to our poor short lines and light plummets, must mean this at all events. His continual activity in presenting before the Divine Father as the motive and condition of his petition being granted, his own great work upon the cross. McLaren rightly highlights that it comes down to Christ's work on the cross, the completion of the Father's will. He has offered himself as a perfect, complete sacrifice, making full atonement for the sins of the elect, He now sits in heaven as our great high priest on merit of his own blood making continual intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1 calls him our advocate. We read in that verse, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The word advocate here in 1 John 2.1 is actually the same Greek word translated helper in John 14. Here the meaning is a clear technical definition of the Greek word in reference to an advocate in legal proceedings. In our terms, this would be a defense attorney. Yet, the way in which he advocates for his people, that is, Jesus advocates for his people, is completely opposite of what a defense attorney would do in court. When he advocates for us, 
I'm sorry, in a court case, the defense attorney will seek to deny the charges made against the defendant. He will endeavor to cast doubt and dispersion on the case that the prosecutor seeks to make. Or at the very least, if there is no doubt in the guilt, he will seek to mitigate the charges that have been brought or justify his client's actions. Not so with our advocate. Our sins are without question. Our sins cry for justice. And God is a just God, and therefore justice must be served. When we speak of Jesus being our advocate, he is an advocate who stands and says, yes, they are guilty as charged. Every last horrible detail is true. There is nothing, no redeeming factor, no explanation, no justification. They are fully deserving of the harshest sentence. But I have paid that penalty. There's their charges, they've been paid for. Their slate has been wiped clean. I have suffered the full measure of the wrath of God. Justice has been satisfied and can ask no more. First John two one speaks of Jesus as our advocate with the Father. But in our passage here in John fourteen, Jesus uses the same word. He says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper. That word helper, it's the same Greek word. The original or Greek in this word is parakletus from which we derive the word paraclete. When you read the commentators on this word, you will see a range of opinions on how it should be translated. Some argue for a much more narrow translation, being that word advocate. Some for a more broad translation, helper or comforter. And having read them, I, I was not swayed strongly by one or the other. But if I were to give my judgment, I would lean more towards the general or broader rendering of helper or comforter. I believe that the idea of one who comes alongside, one uh, who helps and comforts, fits with the context of this verse. Jesus was looking to quiet the disciples' troubled hearts, promising the Father would send one who would aid them, who would be with them, fits this context. A couple of the commentators suggest that in the different verses this word is used, we see different characteristics of the Spirit highlighted. 
In this passage, we see two, the revealer of truth and the comforter. We will see how these two are interconnected as we come to other verses in John 14. First, note that Jesus says the Father will give another helper. A statement implies that there was already one. And that was obviously Jesus. We have previously noted all that Jesus meant to the disciples. As their paraclete, as their helper, he did more for them than they were aware of. He met needs that they did not even know they had. Throughout his ministry, one of his greatest and most important works was teaching them the truth. He sought to correct erroneous teaching of the Jewish leaders. We even saw a case of that in this morning's reading and Jesus correcting the teachings on the Sabbath and what is a right and proper use and activities of the Sabbath. He sought to correct misconceptions of who he was as a Messiah and what his purpose was. We've previously noted in other messages on this chapter how the disciples would have had the misconception of what his kingdom was and what the focus of Jesus coming to earth was. It was not to set up an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one. It was to come and live a perfect life and to die for us. These were all things that Jesus engaged in as their teacher gospel of Jesus Christ would go to all nations. Jesus ministered to a relatively small area of one nation, primarily focusing his teaching and instruction to 12 men. It would have been impossible for Jesus in his humanity to minister to and teach truth to believers across the entirety of the world, as he had with his disciples. Think of how much he taught them in those three years and how much they had yet to learn and magnify that across the world. Their knowledge of God was still lacking. Their understanding was still flawed. They had not yet attained perfection, and therefore, as Jesus was leaving, they would need one that would teach and reveal truth to them, just as we do in our day. So we have here the promise of a helper, God the Holy Spirit, here called the Spirit of Truth. And so he is. It is the Spirit's work in us that opens our blind eyes to see. And we will have more to say on this in a few minutes. But the Spirit's work does not just stop at the moment of conversion. That is just the beginning. As we read and study the Bible, we desperately need the Spirit's aid in knowing and understanding what it says. This is not to say that the Bible is convoluted or complex, that it is impossible to grasp, 
Rather, because of the corruption of sin, our comprehension is compromised. Why is it that an unbeliever can pick up the Bible and read it purely for literary purposes and be totally unaffected? How is it they can read from cover to cover and not be convicted of the truth that it is the word of God? How do they read it and not see the truth it contains and that is exemplified around them? Creation declaring the glory of its creator. How is it they're not convicted of the total depravity of mankind and their need of Jesus Christ as their Savior? It is because they are blind. Well, God has opened our blind eyes to see the truth. Because of our remaining sin, our sight is still blurred. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to see the truth that is packed into the Word of God. I wonder how much we have fully grasped just how desperate our need for the Spirit is in this regard. How often do we let pride rule and we think that we have a good grasp on most things. We think we have, to some degree, at least mastered certain portions. How often do we bow our heads and plead and beg God that He will take what we read in the Bible and what we hear preached and open our eyes to remaining sin correct lack of understanding. I confess that while I often pray this, oftentimes it's been out of habit, not born out of recognition of just how desperate my need is. Do we pray for His help, for the aid of the Spirit, like our spiritual lives depend upon it. There is so much truth packed into the Bible that it is impossible to come close to knowing and understanding all of it. It is amazing how even those passages which I have encountered countless times through my life, I will see something new that I had not seen before. I think many of us, at least, are very familiar with the passage of regarding Lazarus' death and resurrection. But prior to my study for this message, I had not encountered the application of Jesus' long-suffering with Martha's misconstruing his relationship with the Father. What a wonderful promise we have here. Jesus says, those that love him and keep his commandments will have another helper. It is a certainty. Jesus promised it 
and so it will be. He will not leave us to our own understanding. He will not leave us to devise our own understanding of the word of God. He will ask the Father, and the Father will give the spirit of truth. So how does this tie back into the concept of the spirit being the helper or comforter? We do not believe in some sort of hocus-pocus emotional high that God gives us. You can be completely dead and unconverted and go to some sort of Christian concert or a retreat or conference and come away with some emotional high unless there is a change of heart and the emotions are based in a knowledge of God and his word, the emotions will fade quickly and there will be no real comfort or lasting change. As the Spirit reveals the truth contained in the word of God to us, as we come to a fuller knowledge of who God is, we will find true and lasting comfort. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 gives us a prescription for peace. Part of that prescription is prayer with thanksgiving. How is it possible for us to fully engage in this without knowing God and his word? It is in the Bible we learn to pray and what to pray for. This includes that we are to pray in accord with God's will. How will we know his will if we do not know him first? As we learn more of our great God and his word, we'll find more and more comfort. We'll find more and more to give thanks for. The world devises so many means to find peace and comfort. They may suggest You just need to do yoga, or listen to some Zen music, or maybe diffuse some scent. They suggest all these natural solutions to your stress and anxiety. I'm not saying that some of these things have absolutely no legitimacy and won't help you physically relax, but as far as providing real and lasting peace and comfort. They can never do such a thing. And I would urge caution in how much we as Christians embrace and rely on those things that the world devises as solutions to issues that only God can remedy. These things may be an easier road to comfort, at least temporary. But we are not called to take an easy road. God will put us in places where things are hard. The circumstances that the disciples were about to find themselves in was going to be about as hard as it got. When we are faced with hard things, we should not look for the easy road out. Jesus does say the Father Jesus does not say that the Father will provide some sort of shortcut around the hard things. 
No Escape Hatch. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress pictures this. When Christian comes to the valley of the shadow of death, he says, Now at the end of this valley was another called the valley of the shadow of death. And Christian must needs go through it because the way to the celestial city lay through the midst of it. I saw then in my dream, so far as this valley reached, there was on the right hand a very deep ditch. That ditch is it into which the blind have led the blind in all ages and have both there miserably perished. Again, behold, on the left hand, there was a very dangerous quagmire into which, if even a good man falls, he can find no bottom of his foot to stand on. Into that quag King David once did fall, and had no doubt therein been smothered, had not he that is able plucked him out. We try to avoid hard times. We will find ourselves falling off the path to one side or the other. But there is a path through the valley, narrow though it be. God provides a way, and in this we see underscored again our need for him, for the Spirit. God alone will be our guide through such a time. His word will provide that which we need. Just prior to the valley of the shadow of death, Christian had dealt with Apollyon. He struck that final blow with the sword of the Spirit. As we go through our life, the more truth that is revealed to us, the more our knowledge of God increases, the more we learn about ourselves, the more we realize how desperately we need to learn more of God and His Word, how desperately. We need the spirit of truth to shed light on areas of remaining blindness. This is why our Lord includes the promise at the end of verse 16, that he may abide with you forever. This is in contrast to Christ's imminent departure. He tells the disciples the helper, another that was just like him, the Father would give that would be with them forever. This one that the Father would give would abide with all who love Christ and keep his commandments until the end of time. So where does that leave us? What else could we need? The helper will reveal the truth of God's word to us. By it, we are convicted of remaining sin. By it, we find the Savior of sinners revealed. By the Spirit of truth, we learn of the commandments that God has given, of what pleases and displeases our Heavenly Father. We find blessed promises in our unchangeable God. Here Jesus says, the spirit of all truth will be with you forever. What a comfort that should be to us. If only we keep it before us. We, like the disciples, will find 
that Jesus, though he departed from this world, made perfect provision for all who are his. Jesus goes on to say, Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. What we see in verse 16 and 17 is really expounded in 1 Corinthians 2. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 2 with me for a moment. First Corinthians two verse four. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Jump down to verse nine. But as it is written. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians, we have Paul first emphasizing that the efficacy of his ministry was not due to any innate talent or human wisdom or reason that he had. Then he contrasts the world with those who love God, and as in our passage, notes the inability of man to grasp and comprehend spiritual things, the things of God. I want to highlight verse 14 here in 1 Corinthians 2. In this verse, Paul says, the natural man does not and cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. He does not because they are foolishness to him. There are those in the world that are walking billboards of this fact. They openly scoff and mock the idea that there is some supernatural being that people ought to worship. If they cannot touch it and see it, if it is not scientifically verifiable, they regard it as a fairy tale. Something that only those that are weak believe because they need some crutch to get through life. 
Note the second part of this verse, verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 2. Nor can he know them, because they are not spiritually discerned. The unconverted man is spiritually dead. The dead cannot see. They cannot hear. They cannot understand. For you who sit here and are unconverted, maybe you are thinking that, well, I don't think it's foolishness. That's why I'm here. Maybe you're not a walking billboard that I referenced earlier. But yet, you have not experienced the work of the Spirit in your heart. You have not experienced the comfort that the Spirit gives. You have sat here and heard the words that I have said. They are still foolishness to you because you have never experienced it. There's quote from McLaren that I think I have used previously in another message where he said, the understanding is not the faculty by which men lay hold of the peace of God any more than you can see a picture with your ears or hear music with your eyes to everything in its own organ. You cannot weigh truth in a tradesman's scales or measure thought with a yardstick. You must experience it to know it. You must have it in order that you may feel its sweetness. What we have spoken of today is not some mathematical formula or scientific concept that if you study enough, you come to understand it. We are dealing with a matter. We are not dealing with a matter of intelligence or academic exercise. If you are unconverted, you are blind and deaf and dead. What we have spoken of today is something that is only known through experience. Albert Barnes says in his commentary, while he, that is the sinner, thus remains in love with sin, cannot perceive the beauty of the plan of salvation or the excellency of the doctrines of religion. He needs just the love of these things and the hatred of sin. He needs to cherish the influences of the Spirit to receive what he has taught and not to reject it through the love of sin. He needs to yield himself to their influences and then their beauty will be seen. I urge you to pray that God in his mercy will send his spirit to do such a work in you, that he will open your blind eyes and unstop your deaf ears, so that you will behold and embrace the wondrous truths contained in the word of God, greatest of which being that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That you will believe in him. That you will love him. That you will keep his commandments. Now returning to John 14. We have the final phrase here. But you know him. For he dwells with you. And will be in you. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not something 
that was reserved only for the church. It has been the case for every believer since Adam. Keeping in mind what we have already considered, how could it be otherwise? It is not like Old Testament believers were all super saints or, or just had perfect understanding of God and his word. If anything, you could easily argue that they had an even greater need for the Spirit because the Messiah had not yet come. The work of atonement had not yet been completed. The revelation of the word of God was not finished. They had types and shadows. Think of the promise that that Adam had. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. A wonderful promise that sin would be defeated. But yet, think of how much more truth we have revealed to us as those who live after Christ had completed his work. While the disciples walked with Jesus, they too had a need for the Spirit to do his work in them. They would have experienced the work of the Spirit already in their lives. So, while there were other things that Jesus may have spoken of, this was something they likely would have understood, at least to some degree. What a comfort they must have been. Jesus tells them that this helper, the Spirit of truth, would abide with them forever. That the work of the Spirit that they had already experienced would not end when he departed from them. It would continue forever. I trust that even in this hour, as we have looked at this passage, we can bear witness of this truth. Those of us who have received the Spirit can attest to His aid that we have had our eyes opened to more truth, that we've had our eyes opened to remaining sin, that we have had our eyes opened again to see even more of the glory of our Savior and the wonderful blessing of the promise contained in this passage. We pray that those who have come here this morning not knowing Jesus Christ may even have their eyes opened this morning and bow the knee to King Jesus. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our God, we come before you this morning and we are struck with the fact of how poor and weak we are And what a great and glorious God we have and we serve. Our God, as we have looked at your word again this morning, we see how you in your word have provided for our every need. You have given us promises spoken thousands of years ago that are just as true today as when they were spoken. Promises which your people throughout the ages have 
proven the truth of promises which we today have seen proven the truth of and promises which we can hold on to for the rest of our lives, knowing that you, our God, are the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow that you cannot and will not ever change. Our God, we thank you for this promise of your spirit, the spirit of truth that will open our eyes to see more of the truth contained in your word. And our God, we would pray that throughout our lives, we will see this promise proven over and over that as we read more of your word, more of your glory will be revealed to us, more of your love will be revealed to us, more of the greatness of our sin and therefore the greatness of our Savior will be revealed to us. And our God, we pray that you this day will be glorified that there may be those who have not yet believed in you that this day will attest to the truth of this verse and that will attest that the Spirit opened their blind eyes. The Spirit gave them hearts that were alive in Jesus Christ. Our God, we thank you that we can come to you knowing that Christ died on the cross, that we have such ready access to your throne, that he is indeed making continual intercession for us, that he prays to you the Father and will send, you will send the Spirit to us. Our God, we pray for your blessing on the remainder of our day. We thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness and wisdom in setting apart a day for us to focus our hearts and minds on you and to worship you, our great God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.